He played a little bit of drums too, but mostly he was just a huge fan of music. So he knew all of the different kinds of Middle Eastern music, starting with Assyrian music, because that's our, our ethnic uh, background. And then also he was coming from an Arabic country. They knew Arabic music, but also Kurdish music and Turkish and Persian. And because uh, he was actually born in Iran. And when he was three, he moved to Iraq. So he had that background. And my mother studied, you know, was an amateur pianist. So music was around. And my father also had a great love of jazz. Even before he came to the United States, he, when he was in Baghdad, he played what they called jazz drums, which were just their way of calling a drum set. You know? <laughs> uh, but he also was aware somehow of jazz. And then when he arrived in the United States when he was 18 or something, he... You know, he, he became a big jazz fan, Louis Armstrong and Count Basie and these kind of uh, music in the 50s uh, you'd, you'd hear in the United States, African-American music. Uh, so that was always around the house. And uh, so I had a great appreciation of music. I never really thought about being a musician. I was the oldest of four boys and the third brother, uh, we call him Ziggy, he was the musical kind of prodigy in the family. He was the one that sat down at the piano when he was two years old and started just playing. And then my father was very encouraging of him, and he would sing him all of these melodies, these Middle Eastern melodies, and eventually Ziggy would plunk them out on the piano until the point where he was, by the time he was seven, he was playing, uh, you know, a Farfisa duo compact organ in belly dancing nightclubs for belly dancers. Wow. And I was always around that, but even then I didn't uh, even consider playing music myself. And also in Chicago, where I was raised, uh, on the north side of Chicago, it was a very, I was in a very mixed area. I still am. It's near the, near the lakefront on the north side. Um, and that was also, you know, like the kid, the kid across the street who was my friend, his old, older brother, they were Cuban, and he, mm -hmm. he, his older brother played the congas. And I'd hear him practicing all the time. And, you know, as I got older, of course, into my uh, early teens, I, I started to pick up on um, Chicago Association for Advancement of Creative Musicians, Fred Anderson, people like that. I would go when I could and uh, listen to their music uh, live. And so I had a pretty rich musical upbringing and a very diverse upbringing just from being in Chicago and then also just from what my father and my brother brought. It wasn't until... I graduated high school, and I was about I was 16, and I graduated high school, and with a neighborhood friend, I took a long trip, hitchhiking trip from Chicago to San Francisco, and then up almost to Alaska, and then across Canada, back down to Chicago over the course of four months. Wow. The first week out, I was already, you know, listening to music, like I said, in the clubs here where I could, not so much the clubs, but like Fred Anderson had a place called The Birdhouse, which was just a, it was like a storefront. 
And I heard a lot, my friend who I traveled with was, he had a great record collection of jazz. So I listened to a lot of that. He sort of introduced me to all this stuff. So I'd heard a lot of music already, but then the first week out, I was, uh, we were in San Francisco and I went to this club called the Keystone Corners. This is in 1976 to hear mm-hmm. a man uh, named Rashan Roland Kirk. Well, Rashan Roland Kirk was this amazing African-American musician. He was uh, sight impaired from a young age. And his, his thing was he used to play two or three saxophones at the same time. And aside from that, he'd have different things, like he'd have a nose flute, he'd have you know, transistor radio on his chest. And so he was just like uh, a real magic man, you know? <laughs> yeah, he sounds like fun, yeah. Yeah, yeah, incredible. I mean, you'll see, you'll just go look for uh, Roland Kirk on YouTube, you'll see he's an amazing, amazing guy. And this was 1976, and he died in 1977. So this was one of the you know, last year or so of his life. And when I saw that concert, it was so um, revelatory to me in a way that I'd never had experienced music for, even though I'd seen a lot of live music already and certainly listened to a lot of records and what have you, radio. But uh, for the first half hour of the show, I was just completely fascinated by the way he looked. Oh, that's the other thing. At this point in his life, he had had a stroke. And so the left side of his body didn't work very well. And so they brought him out and they sort of propped him up on a stool. He was walking very slow. And he could only play two saxophones at once at this point <laughs> because his left arm wasn't working so well. Wow. And he was a very magnificent-looking person. You know, he had big black glasses and very colorful clothing. And, of course, all of these things hanging off of his, his chest, his saxophones, his whistles, his bells, his radios. His, uh, so for the first half hour, I was just fascinated by... I'd never seen anyone like this, and nobody has then or since. But uh, um, but then after a while, what started happening was this kind of phenomena where uh, I, I felt like he was channeling some kind of energies, and it just kind of washed over me, and they were really profoundly affecting me. And it was very fascinating because by the end of the concert, I was so I was so moved and so um, taken by all of that, that I, when I walked out of that space, that was all I wanted to do. And the funny thing was that I didn't really know what it was, because <laughs> it wasn't so much that I knew it had something to do with music, of course, but the phenomena that that, that uh, engulfed me was something larger than just, oh, it's saxophone, or oh, it's, you know, this band. It, 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 as a matter of fact, for years afterwards, I couldn't tell you the members of the band, I couldn't tell you the songs they played, I couldn't tell you any of the particulars about the music, but what stayed with me was this very strong, profound feeling of this channeling of energy. And um, so, yeah, that was that was it for me. From that moment on, it's like I just had to try to figure out how to get to where that was. I got home after my long trek, my four months, I, I just picked up the darbuka, which is the drum, the Arabic drum that my father played and my, he played with my brother, and that was always lying around the house. And I picked it up and I just started to improvise on it. So music found me in that way, to, to make a very, very long story short, that's, that's how I came to it. So it taught me two things right off the bat. One, that this kind of channeling of energy is where I wanted to go to. And the second one was that this kind of live performance as a witness or a player or it, it can be transformative. Yes. Because it was transformative for me in that moment, literally. Well, in the course of whatever, that two and a half hours I was there, I walked in one way, I walked out the other way. And there was yes. just no two ways about it. And it's been that way ever since. So that was something that was also very profound that it could be so transformative mm-hmm. yeah so how did you get to the next step like did you decide to go to music school after that or well i did pick up that drum and i i pretty quickly picked up enough i would say technique and, and, uh, and facility to play a little bit and then shortly after i got back after that trip as a matter of fact right after i got back I met this crazy guy 
who was just this weird guy that sort of came up to me. I was sitting in the cafeteria reading, and this strange guy came up, and he just looked me up and down, and he sat down across from me, and I'm like, hey, who are you? And then I started this conversation with this guy named Daniel Scanlon. And this guy played the violin. Uh, He was about a year or two older than me, but he was a really interesting musical mind already. I mean, he was really into avant-garde music, really into uh, contemporary classical composition. He was really into all kind of music. And uh, so I told him that I played this hand drum and he played the violin. And I said, well, we should get together and play. And so we got together and we just did these sort of long, naive improvisations that really were more about um, high energy (laughs) than any, you know, refined musical concepts. But it was almost like fake ragas or something that we would do these things. And and then we started to do... um, we would <laughs> we would show up at parties as if we were the hired band for the night, nice. and we would just say, well, you know, where do you want us to set up? And and they'd say, oh, the musicians are here. <laughs> Nobody there was supposed to be musicians. And we sat in the corner and we played like in this manner of really high energy, and people seemed to take to it. And yeah, it just started from like really naive improvisation. And so I was about sixteen, I was seventeen years old at that time. And for a couple of years, I did that. And the only thing I really knew was that I wanted to, um, I wanted to do exploratory music and experimental music. I wanted to um, try to push what I knew. I didn't want to just find a, you know, a thing that I could play and just play that over and over until I got to be a master at that one thing. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to, to go into different directions. So. It occurred to me at that time, a couple things occurred to me at that time, that one, I needed to take a vow of poverty because this was never going to be a money-making proposition. <laughs> and the second thing was that I needed, to, um, I needed to understand a little bit also about other performing art forms because it occurred to me early on that whatever it is that we're doing in performance, whatever that was that Roland Kirk was doing on the stage that got me so drawn in... Um, there's a common thread between all the performing arts. So immediately I got this little, I had some friends that were dancers, and they, there was a, a dance space called Mo Ming, and I got to be an accompanist there. So immediately I had some kind of employment, even though, you know, it didn't pay a lot, but I did it since, you know, from the time I was 17 till the time I was about 24 years old, like hardcore full-time as much as I could. So at least I was making some... And also, I learned a lot. Um, I learned so much just from working with with dance, even in that most uh, rudimentary way of like accompanying dance classes. And then, even I, you know, over the year, I I picked up a little piano, I picked up a little clarinet, I picked up a little whatever was around, so I could make it more interesting for the dancers and also for myself, keep myself amused. So. So, so this, wait, you've been never actually formally trained. So you, you well, went it, to college wanting to do physics and math, and you kind of picked up all of this on the side. Yes, but this is only for the first few years. By the time I was 19, I decided uh, that I would go to music conservatory. It just occurred to me, like, well, I'm doing music all the time. I love music. Maybe I should go to music school. And a good friend of mine who I was playing music with at the time, a guy named Kent Kessler, was at the... Uh, Chicago Music College at Roosevelt University and he said oh why don't you come to music school and to me it was even like they have schools for music wow that's great (laughs) what a great idea and I told my father and my father was so funny because he's such a music fan and I said well I'm gonna go to music school and he just kind of looked at me like music school that's not something we you know they get a real job music we do do right we do this for fun right (laughs) So anyway, that's when I started my formal training, and that was really difficult for me because I chose that school, Roosevelt Music College, because it was this rigorous classical music school. And I was doing all this free playing, all this crazy playing, all this, and I, just, I didn't need a program that was going to just duplicate that for me. I was also, you know, like working with dance uh, as an accompanist, but also I was starting to compose some kind of things for, for choreographers. And so I was doing a lot of outside of the box stuff, but what I didn't know anything about was music theory, ear training, you know, <laughs> uh, the actual study of percussion, the actual study of composition. So I found this school that was, it's a, it was a rigorous classical music school, like training people to play in orchestras and be composers and be arrangers and things like that. 
and I really needed that. And so the first year and a half was was so difficult for me. I mean, I l- basically lived there. I would sleep under the piano in the practice room just because, you know, I couldn't I, I couldn't practice enough. And it wasn't just practice, practice. Like a, I was a double major, first off, of uh, percussion and also composition, which was way too ambitious for someone who just stepped into a classical music school. But I tell you, the first days, you know, this ear, ear training and music uh, theory was so difficult for me because all the other kids that were there had been playing already. They were, you know, playing in orchestras and when they were little kids and everything. And I didn't have any of that. They could read music. I couldn't read music. So I, I had to learn very quickly how to read music, but also how to hear intervals. And to me, when they first presented me with that, even just a simple interval on a piano, like a minor sixth or something, I would just... I would just say, what are they listening for? I hear all of this sound, and it's like there's all these pulses and vibrations, and okay, so now we have to, you know, it just took me so long. Sometimes for, for a whole day, I would just sit at the piano and play intervals and sing them and going, okay, minor third, <laughs> you know, that's what it sounds like. Now what's it like over here and lower and higher? So it was yeah. really quite a lot. And then the percussion studies that were there were also very uh, uh, classical oriented. So this is training for the orchestra. And my teacher was this excellent teacher named Edward Perimba, and he was the timpanist for the lyric opera. And he immediately took a liking to me. That's the only reason I got into the school. I mean, because I had no other credentials to to walk into a school like that, but he sort of took a chance on me (laughs) because he just saw my, my enthusiasm, I guess. That hunch, that taking chance on somebody, like, that can really pay off. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, he was training to be a classical musician to take his job one day at the Lyric, which is I had no interest in whatsoever, but still. And also, he was just a very good teacher in that he was very patient mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, very methodical and very patient. And then my composition teachers, Don Malone and uh, Robert Lombardo, two very, very different teachers, Robert Lombardo was a, uh, uh, writing a lot of contemporary classical music, very fully notated, very uh, shaped forms and what have you. And, and Don Malone was much more into improvisation and electronic music. He ran the Electronic Music Lab, which in those days meant tape machines <laughs> and a synthesizer that you had to put like 10 plugs in before you got a sine wave and, you know, so basic stuff. But... Uh, and he was also very open in different kinds of thought about music, uh, not just Western thought. So I had these two really great teachers, but it was a really rigorous time for about three and a half years where I just I studied the ear training and the harmonies and the theory, rather, and, uh, of course, the percussion and then composition classes. Synthesizing all of this, what is like the bigger picture here what is your philosophy about music or at least what was it before and has it evolved yes well at the time when i was young and studying my philosophy was just really i have to be open to it all not just uh what i like or not just even what the the pedagogy was going to teach me Mm -hmm. so that's when i started you know and i'd been doing this already but that's when i had started to really start to listen to music of different cultures and similarly i was and I say I was working with dance, um, I was also fascinated by other performing art forms because I knew that there was a connection. Anyone that gets up in front of an audience or gets into a situation where there's like a, a communal situation where there's performances and, uh, and people that are giving or people that are taking and how that all works, there's something mm-hmm. in common there. So, and I learned, sure enough, I learned a lot from dance that I probably would have never really learned, at least in the same way, if I had just studied music and hung out with musicians. Yeah. So that that brings me directly to the question that I was going to ask you right after. You're probably the only person I know who does music for puppet theater. Oh, well, there's a few uh, of us. <laughs> how did you come across that? Why did you go for it? Like, I get the common thread that you've been trying to talk about, but puppet theater is so out there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> In 1990, I met this guy. I'd known him for a few years before that. His name is Blair Thomas, and he's a puppet theater, a theater artist, but also, uh, you know, the object theater and puppet theater at the time I met him. And I started to work with him, and I just loved it because 
Prior to that, I had worked a lot with dance, and I sort of mm-hmm. gotten burned out a little bit with working with dance, and I moved to action theater, uh, physical theater, uh, working in collaboration with those, those kind of artists. And it, somehow it was like a logical extension to go from dance to physical action theater. And then to, when I came across puppet theater, I was just so thrilled. Because the thing about puppet theater that I loved, and this sort of played into my own uh, do-it-yourself aesthetic that I had to deal with as a musician... And what I loved about the puppet theater, especially at the time in Chicago, was a very, very vibrant scene. And um, Blair was sort of at the head of this. And it was, they were just so great because they'd find garbage, literally. They'd cardboard and, you know, whatever was in the trash. And they'd, and they'd glue it together and they'd paint it up. And all of a sudden they'd have this beautiful thing that they could animate. And, you know, people would completely suspend belief. And that was a thing that was talking to them. <laughs> it was like... That was just the magic of that sort of a, what they call poor theater was so powerful for me because it just showed that, you know, the, 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 the creativity is what's, what it's about. It's not so much about you have to have the perfect, you know, form, perfect puppet, the perfect uh, has to be realistic. No, it can be anything, literally anything that can slap together and animate and bring to life. And it's just like magic. And the thing about puppet theater, of course, that every culture has puppets. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there were so many different cultures to draw from, the shadow puppets and the, the marionettes and ventriloquial puppets. And, you know, it just went on and on and on. So there was, it was a great, rich thing. Yeah, it uh, is. It is actually a very rich form of theater that I hadn't really thought about at all until uh, right this minute, actually. So, yeah. What is the state of puppet theater today as compared to... Well, I actually think it's gotten better and more sophisticated, but it's certainly back then in the, in the 90s, I would say, in Chicago anyway. There was a real uh, renaissance, really innovative stuff, and uh, uh, Blair had a lot to do with it. It's just such a, a diverse way mm-hmm. of performing, and it's a diverse kind of theater that I really enjoyed. Um, and like I said, because there's so many deep traditions with it, you can really draw from so many different uh, inspirations. So I don't really, I mean, there's still some puppet theater happening in Chicago, some good stuff. There's something at Lynx Hall called, uh, a, a regular program called Nasty, Brutish, and Short. Uh, and they and they bring in like, it's sort of like a variety show of different puppet artists. And it's different every, whatever, they do it once a month or something. Uh, yeah, it, it does sound fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you said... It was a natural transition from dance to going to the physical theater. Um, and I saw that a few years ago, I think you were involved with the production of Moby Dick and you came up with a very unique instrument uh, through that production. So can you tell us more about that? Yes, again, this was with Blair Thomas's company. Uh, and I have to tell you, we've been working on Moby Dick since 1990. And every time, you know, there's been probably, I've probably worked on four or five different iterations of it. And every time it is completely different because Moby Dick is such a rich piece of literature that you can dive into it and pull something out different every time. And so for this last iteration... There were four of us, two puppeteers, and a, I was the on-stage sonic guy, and there was a musician that played uh, acoustic guitar and sang songs. And uh, for this, and for a lot of other things, you know, when you talk about composition for theater, I always try to come into it, whatever the project is, and just erase everything that I know and start from, like, start from scratch with a project and especially with other, you know, with these collaborators. So Blair came in for this last iteration and he had these ideas. And so anyway, thinking about the music for that piece, I realized that uh, I wanted to do the sonic effects on the stage and I wanted them all to have uh, some kind of aspect of cranking like you have, would have on a ship, right? Or, or pulleys and things like that. So I tried to come up with different things that, I, that were physical, not necessarily musical instruments, but there was also a thing called a roller organ, which was this weird little thing from the beginning of the 20th century that had a, it had a long wooden uh, dowel with, with uh, metal tongs in it. 
and you'd put mm-hmm. it into like a an organ or like a it's almost like an accordion, but you'd crank this is it. Pretty dirty, right? No, no. This is this is an organ. It's, it's just like air air pump through uh, blowing through reeds, but the. Uh-huh. Uh, but the log that you put in there had a different song in there. So I had one of those and it played like this little calliope kind of sound. And then I built a big wind machine that was a big shh. When I say I built it, the stagehands built it. And then I had this idea for, I've always been fascinated by Hurdy Gurdy, but uh, one of the things in Moby Dick, the first scene in Moby Dick is uh, Ishmael floating away on a coffin that belonged to one of the... Uh, people on the ship, guys named Quick. And so I thought, okay, let's make a huge hurdy-gurdy. Primary mechanism of a hurdy-gurdy is a, a, a wooden wheel that spins and across and rubs across uh, a string. So it, it gives you a long, sustained note. Now, hurdy-gurdies also have keys where you can change the you know, pitches and play melodies and what have you. But for this instrument, I wanted to make it the size, the scale size of a cello, a uh, full-size cello, so with four cello strings and no mechanisms uh, for tonality. So it would just basically drone on four open strings. So it was like this large, hellacious sound, really. And for the play, we had this made up. I sort of made a rough design in this guy, um, Eric, like a carpenter, basically. He put this thing together. And the idea was I, uh, the opening of the play, I wore it strapped around my neck and, and entered the performance space and made a circle, a slow circle around the entire performance space, droning on this thing. And so that was, yes, it was a great sound effect and also a great visual effect because this, this is a coffin. It's shaped Uh, like a coffin. It Uh, it sounds, it sounds, yes. I I heard the the studies that you have made with these instruments and that, that is a sound I had never heard before. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty severe. I mean, the thing is, once that play was finished and I took this instrument home, I started to really work on it as an instrument. I started by making studies for it. So yeah. I, I went about it methodically, and I did three different studies, and then I finally did a large composition for it. That kind of feeds into this whole idea of exploring different things. I mean, this is a, a new instrument, although it's based on the hurdy-gurdy, which is very old. But um, the way this this instrument was set up and what have you, it needed to it needed to find its a way of playing it, a way of uh, developing and mastering techniques for it, and so. So, um, so I was going to actually ask you which instrument you prefer playing. Um, you clearly play a lot of them. Is there one that you prefer? Well, you know, I started with the Darabuka, and that's mm-hmm. still my, it's probably the instrument that I have the most facility on. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's also a double-edged sword, uh, this idea of technique. It's, I don't have a favorite instrument. I like percussion in general but as i said earlier that means i play 40 instruments or something i really liked like when i was in music school we had to study everyone had to study uh further percussion skills they had to study the marimba in the first year so they had a mallet instrument so they could do their scales and what have you and the second year you could move away from the marimba to another uh keyboardy instrument and most people went to the vibraphone because it was kind of a you know jazz maybe more of a jazz thing but I wanted to play the xylophone, which is my poor teacher. He was so <laughs> he was so upset with me because he just kept telling me, "You'll never work." <laughs> like, yeah, I know, but I really like the sound of it. And at first, he was just like, first the thing he did was he brought in this uh, this little slim book, which was all the orchestral repertory for the xylophone, <laughs> and it was just like, okay, this is it. <laughs> so, you know, for two, three weeks, we went through it. I learned it all. I'm like, okay, so what's next? And that's it. I was like, no, come on. There's got to be other stuff. And so then when he realized that was a hopeless case, he went out and he found all of this great music that was written, like, for vaudeville in the 20s and 30s. And it was all for xylophone, but it was, like, for four mallets and for six mallets. 
And it's the kind of thing you play with a monkey on your shoulder. Really more like gymnastics than music, just like arpeggios that would go to the page would be solid black <laughs> notes. But he found me this stuff, and I, you know, that one, I really appreciated that because I could, I could really go through a lot of that stuff, and it was fascinating. And of course, he was right. When I finished music school and I had to leave there because of a lack of funding, uh, my xylophone got repossessed, and uh, it wasn't until years later, maybe twenty years, twenty-five years later, that I, I, I bit the bullet and went and bought myself an excellent, you know, nineteen thirties four octave xylophone, which is really rare, a concert, they call it concert xylophone, and it's a beautiful instrument, and of course I never work <laughs> on it. <laughs> anyway, it, there's a lot of instruments, I love them all. The thing with the darbuka, this is a, you know, this was the interesting thing, because that was the first thing I played. I picked it up when I was 16, 17 years old. By the time I was maybe 25 or 26, I stopped playing it completely, because I, I got to this place where my technique was actually um, way beyond my ideas. Like when I was playing in belly dancing nightclubs and playing for parties and playing for dances, great. I was fine. I had this great technique. I was playing this real specific pres prescribed music, Middle Eastern music different of different uh, regions. And I, I knew the music and I could play it inside out. And my technique was blinding and everyone was amazed and all this kind of stuff. But when I went to improvise on it, I would just fall into this kind of um, muscle memory, gymnastic kind of thing. Yeah. I didn't have the ideas, but the technique was like through the roof. So it was such a disparity between my, my ideas and my technique that it sort of freaked me out and I just stopped playing for years. Um, hoping one day I'd have an idea or two. So if I go to improvise on it, it will, they'll have something to say and not just show you what a great gymnast I am, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is something that we used to encounter a lot in my classes when, you know, my guru was teaching us. It was like, he teaches techniques. And then he'd be like, I can only teach you techniques. You have to come up with ideas on your own. Like, you need to listen to music. You need to, like, synthesize yes. your own stuff. You come up with the ideas. I, yeah. can, I will teach you the techniques. So, yes, that's a, that's a really important gap to uh, kind of navigate. Yeah. Yes. Um, so switching kind of gears a little bit, uh, I assume you speak multiple languages. So do do you think that does language kind of um, correlate with the kind of music that you end up in? Yeah. Well, first off, I don't speak. I mean, I, I was raised speaking Assyrian, which is mm -hmm. kind of a dead language. Um, mm -hmm. As for traveling, I do travel a lot, but I don't. I study, I've been studying German for a while. <laughs> um, I can order coffee in many languages. <laughs> I know, so I know a few words in a lot of different uh, languages, but I don't really, I've never really mastered other languages. And, and I remember I, one of the questions that you had was, uh, do you have any regrets? That's my biggest regret. Yeah, so the language, but the thing about languages, on the other hand, you know, you can listen, so much of the music I listen to from around the world, let's just say, is someone singing in a different language that I don't understand. And I'm very happy to hear the, the voice and the, the, the rhythm and the melody of that particular language and how they sing. And I can completely enjoy the music without even knowing what the words mean. Now, of <laughs> course, it would be better to probably know what the words mean, although maybe not. <laughs> but... There is a way to listen to languages um, for their for their musicality, for their mm -hmm. uh, tonality, and for their rhythm. And mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, when I teach, when I used to teach more percussion, you know, if someone would come to me and say, "Well, I don't really have a good rhythm," and I'm like, "Well, what do you mean, uh, good rhythm? Can you here recite this line of poetry? Now recite it again and again and again, and do it." clear and articulate mm -hmm. and now listen to what you just did forget about the words and listen to the melody and listen to the rhythm of what you did now play that on the drum and then all of a sudden they're doing that and they're, they're playing this complex rhythm because mm -hmm. this is complex the, the, of the, the rhythm of a language or any language is complex so mm -hmm. each language has that so language in that regard can be approached as another musical uh element. So it does play, sure, it does play into the way uh, people express. 
when you think about music, how do you think about it? Do you visualize music or do you have certain non-auditory precepts that help you think about music? Well, you know, a lot of times what I like to do is I always like to go back to the most uh, fundamental physiological and phenomenological thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. Just as a place to start, not the be-all and the end-all. But and to that regard, then really what we're doing is we're making vibrations. And we're making vibrations in, and the confluence of these vibrations between the different instruments and even between the instrument you're, you, know, you, you might be playing and, and the others is what the music is. Mm-hmm. And vibrations are physical, clearly physical things. They're not, you can't see them necessarily. In that regard, there's all sorts of things that then in the physiology of, of the performer and the audience, these vibrations play on you in different ways. And this takes me back to Rashan Rollenkirk. What was it in his vibration that profoundly affected me, not just in my mind, but in my, in my being? That's what's really happening on one very fundamental level, is that it's a confluence of vibra- vibrations in a given space and a given acoustic using given instruments. All of these things are sort of maybe set parameters, even though what I'm talking about is improvising. There are many things that are already set, uh, how, you, how you're perceiving. And you also, it's not like you're hearing these vibrations only with your ear. Of course, they go through different, your bones, your membranes, your water, all this other stuff. So, you know, what's happening physiologically to someone who's experiencing that, it can't be just measured in hearing so why do you think that is? Like, why did we even evolve music? Every culture, ubiquitously, has evolved some kind of a music or another. Yes. What do you think that is? I think that has more to do with um, an aspect of uh, uh, the spirit of humans that, that want to have ecstatic experiences and want to take bring things to higher levels. And, and through music, it's, it's charged this way to take you out of yourself, to take you, to transport you in a way, or to um, open up parts of yourself that you don't ordinarily access. So I think that's why it's so fundamental. I think humans need that, because I think human beings at the, at the core are uh, searching for the next, mm-hmm. the next phenomenon, to, the next experience would be it physical, mental, spiritual, whatever. It's always a constant searching, constant searching. And of course, music is just, out of all of the the performing arts even, I mean, music is the most, in a way, it's the purest because it's dealing simply with vibrations. And those vibrations can have profound effects on every aspect of the person performing and the person uh, witnessing. And also, there's a communal aspect to it. Which yeah. is very, very important. This idea of ritual, this idea of gathering, this idea of communion. I mean, I, I'm of the mind that this is a very deep-seated human desire to commune, to, to gather, to yeah. witness something together, to experience something as a group. And I think that that'll always be the case. I mean, these days I'm a little... I'm a little freaked out because everyone's doing their performances online and it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, but I believe, I do believe that no matter what the technology does, what, uh, how we evolve our minds and everything, uh, human beings will still want to come and gather mm-hmm. and experience something like that live together. So I think it's fundamental to the human being. I think it's natural that it's, it makes so much sense to me that music, every culture has music and there's music been, been around forever. Yeah. So, do you have you ever um, tried to take a political stance to your music? I think that the act of improvisation is a political stance. Collectively making music is a political stance, and it's a very strong one because if you take it in the realm of this small uh, world of music making, okay, mm-hmm. it has its parameters. But if you if you bring it out further into real into to the rest of your life mm-hmm. this way this idea that uh i'm going to collectively be engaged and create something that no one of us in the collective could ever create on our own mm-hmm. that's a very powerful political position the politics in that regard that's where 
I would say that's a radical stand, uh, in, in a sense. Because it's, it's not about so much the individual all the time. Okay. It's yeah. about creating something that's larger than yourself. I don't usually go into too many expressions that are politically dogmatic. But I think that the act itself of improvisation is, is a radical political stand. That's really well put, yeah. Thank you. Um, okay, so I think we're kind of getting towards the end of the, the conversation, but I want to ask you a couple of things that are more current. You were the artistic director for the Lynx Hall for a long time, and you curated a series of concerts for... Um, that venue, which is now, I guess, Constellation. Um, um, Lynx Hall is actually its own separate organization. They're housed at Constellation. Ah. So it's really like two... Constellation is the the, the space, and then Lynx Hall is their sole uh, tenant, ah. if you will. And Lynx Hall is primarily these days, and has been for quite a while, a sort of experimental dance and movement and performance space. I see. So what was... What was your experience with that kind of a curation? What were you looking for when, when you were a part of the Queen's Hall? Yes, when I first started, I mean, this goes back to the earlier days when I was a younger musician and having to do everything yourself. Uh, I was working at Lynx Hall, just rehearsing up there with one of my music groups. And, and the director there at the time, the guy that ran the space, a, a man named Bob Eisen, and he was running it as a kind of an artist run dance space but he got tired of it in around 1984-85 he just felt like the dance scene was not happening for him and and he wanted to keep the space because he wanted to rehearse there and he so he just sort of turned to me and said look well, you want to want to book some things up in here now i told him i said well i you know wouldn't really know where to start with dance and and this kind of performance stuff i it's not the people that i know but i could do music and um, he said sure go ahead do whatever you want now at the time in chicago and this is really just, you know, there's a cyclical nature of how things happen in Chicago over the years and what's available, what's not available. At that particular time, there were very few venues for experimental music, if any. And the few that existed were either like through a university or, uh, you know, maybe one kind of academic academic series somewhere. Very few, to the point where artists, experimental music artists, free jazz artists from Europe or from the East Coast, when they travel through the United States, they just skip Chicago because there was really no place to perform. And I was constantly driving up to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to this little tiny book uh, bookstore called Woodland Pattern, which I've played in a million times, but they would have all these concerts. So I'd have to drive up to Milwaukee to see all these things that I like. So when Bob Eisen offered to give me this space, I thought, great, let's do this. It, this is There's a huge hole in the fabric of the performing arts in this city in terms of experimental music, and maybe we can fill it a little bit. So it was really out of this kind of necessity. Um, and again, with this whole do-it-yourself uh, mentality that I started to program. And it really, I was, you know, I was pretty much on my own. I had friends, uh, one, of, one or two friends helping me, but I would book the acts, I would uh, get there, set up the chairs, I would put up the PA, I would make sure everything was fine, I'd record the concert afterwards, would have a party afterwards, everyone went home, I'd clean up. You know, it was it was something that I needed to do uh, for myself in a way so I could get the benefits of all of this great stuff coming through. And also just, um, you know, in a way you're part of a community. And uh, if there's something missing that you can help provide, then that's a really good thing for everyone involved. And certainly that has a ripple effect out. Uh, so there was a scene all of a sudden when I started to do this. And the one other thing was that I had a lot of friends that were poets and writers, and they had no venue outside of acad the academic world to perform. And they were trying to perform in little bars. No one was listening to them. They didn't even get a microphone half the time. It was a real nightmare. And so when I started the Links Hall Performance Series in 1985, I did poetry and fiction readings on Thursday nights and experimental music on Friday and Saturdays. So, wonderful. and then the, the poetry series exploded too, because there were so, just at the time, there were so many great writers uh, that were hungry for a venue mm -hmm. that took them seriously. You know, they gave them a mic stand and a microphone and a relatively quiet space to, you know, to do their thing in. And it was like, 
it just sort of took care of itself because the need was there. And, yeah. I, and I never was the kind of curator back then that just picked and chose things that I liked. Because if that was the case, we'd be done in two months. You know, yeah. that's, it's not really up to me. I, I had more of an open door policy. The only caveats were that you had to be doing, in the case of the poetry and fiction, well, whatever you were doing, because that's pretty marginal anyway. And in the case of music, it had to be something that was forward thinking and, and pushing boundaries, and as opposed to just like, you know, my crappy rock band can't get a gig at any of the clubs. So can we play here? No, you can't play here. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, so it was filling a real need at the time. And that lasted from 85 to, to 89. And then I did another series in the 90s at a place called Urbis Orbis, which was a kind of a coffee shop that just had a back room and they gave it to me and they were happy. And then I had my own space called The Candlestick Maker from 2001 to 2005. And I did concerts in there every Friday and Saturday night for about four years straight. And uh, it, it varied from like my famous friends that were coming from Europe performing there and then uh, people that were just young and trying out their things for the first time performing there and, and everything in between. So it was really, you know, it was 363 concerts I did in, uh, in that time at that space. And all of that, again, was just like filling holes of what was not happening in our scene in this particular city and also trying to just enrich the environment with, with different perspectives on performing. So I have a couple questions which are kind of related. You mentioned Fred Anderson right at the beginning, yes. uh, where you kind of like hung out at his um, place at the birdhouse, and you kind of, you know, that's, that was one of your introductions to music. Um, one of your long-time collaborators, Hamid Drake, also was in the same space as the one that Fred Anderson created. Yes. So did you end up meeting him there? Uh, how did you start the collaboration with him? And... How did you even get the idea of doing these early sorts of concerts? Well, yeah, it's a funny story because Hamid and I were, yeah, there was a lot of parallel to where we were, but we never met until uh, later, like in 1988. And it was, uh, we met through my brother, Ziggy, the one I told you about huh. earlier. Huh? Ziggy, after being a child prodigy musician, by the time he gets to be about 12 or 13, he gave up as a musician because he finally went to take a piano lesson and... On the one hand, he could play circles around the teacher. On the other hand, she was telling him he was doing it all wrong and he just didn't sit well with him, whatever. <laughs> but he had his great ear, so he became, and still is to this day, like an excellent high-end sound engineer for live concerts. And he's, you know, he toured the world with all sorts of the, with the, the Reggae Sunsplash, Ziggy Marley, uh, Peter Tosh, uh, James Brown, all the different African acts, I mean, doing live concert sound in huge places. So he's got great ears. And, and so Ziggy knew a lot of musicians. So Ziggy knew Hamid uh, for years. Yeah, so he hooked us up. And then in 1988, I was doing, at Lynx Hall, I was doing a benefit concert. It was like an all-day thing with, you know, dozens of different acts, one after the next. So I invited Hamid um, to do just a short frame drum duo. I'd met Hamid, and of course, he was such a wonderful man. Um, I took to him right away. And then we played this 20-minute thing, and we just kind of both looked at each other afterwards and went, whoa, <laughs> let's do that again, you know? And uh, so we started this this uh, relationship of playing together in various ways and doing these duos. And then in 1990, we decided to do this winter solstice concert. And it was really the first year, it was really something that we, we would do it was yeah, the whole idea was just like for family and friends. Mm -hmm. So maybe we had like 30 people to show up at the six in the morning for a sunrise concert in the middle of the winter. And the next year there were lines around the block. Wow. So it was like, Oh, okay. So <laughs> now what? Let's just keep doing this. <laughs> so oh, in various ways we expanded it. And over the years, then that the winter solstice just took off. And we used to play a lot more um, duo concerts aside from that. It's been, this year will be, I don't know if we're going to be able to do our winter solstice this year, but it'll be our 30th anniversary, so that'll be it. Wow. You have to do it. Like, I know, but will, they let, <laughs> will they let anyone in, or will they? <laughs> 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 we have to have like a, 
I don't know how to do it. We'll see. We'll see what it's like in December in this crazy yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of living in these times, um, how are you dealing with that? And what is your current project on? What what is what is the note that you would like to end this podcast with? Well, I mean, as far as like living through these times, uh, we're only starting. Of course, music and music performance, it's very big unknown as to when things will get back to something, some semblance of normalcy. I've been trying to stay busy. Certainly, I practice my instruments as much as I can, and I have plenty of time to do that. I also do things like uh, I'm, I'm making a painting, which is, uh, uh, I consider myself kind of a hobbyist, but I've been painting and drawing all my life. And this is a great time to have that hobby, believe me, when you're just <laughs> stuck by yourself all the time. <laughs> um, I'm composing some things. I'm going in and out with some different kind of compositions. Uh, yeah. And so I'm just looking. I'm hoping that when we all come out the other side of this, we've learned um, some lessons about ourselves, about mm-hmm. our practice, about how to move forward, about what was working before and what was not working before. I'm hoping that we come out uh, in a better place. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's terribly optimistic, but that's what I'm hoping will will be the case. Yeah. It was very illuminating to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you for agreeing to do this. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. That was Michael Zarang talking to us about his journey in music, starting from his Assyrian background to his transformative experience with Rashawn Roland Kirk's music to his discovery of the joys of so many other performing arts. His love for music and his unwavering dedication to it all through his life is certainly inspirational. I hope you check out his music at michaelzirang.com. And for more information about Rufik's Coffin, the Hurdy Gurdy, the Darbuka, and to see Michael's stylish puppet made by Blair Thomas, please visit our webpage nunadamusic.blogspot.com. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time.